Well, I'm sure we've all heard it said, probably most of us in some TV drama or movie, that's my constitutional right. It's one of the most powerful legal statements we have in North America, in Canada. The Constitution, it's the law that governs all other laws. It's the first and most foundational legal document that we have. And, and, And though the Constitution itself is relatively small and relatively simple, Every other law of our country and and even the government itself flows out from that document. It's the Constitution that makes Canada Canada. It's the Constitution that makes Canadians Canadians. It's what sets us apart from being British or American or Chinese. The Constitution of Canada shapes the life of every Canadian. We've been tracking with Israel as God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt and across the Red Sea and across the wilderness to the foot of Mount Sinai. And now he's about to hand down to them essentially their constitution. This is it. This is the foundational definition of who they are as the people of God. It's the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20. So turn with me there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming forward. Just slip up your hand. They would love to put one into your hand. I'm sorry, I have nothing for you. I have no wisdom. I have no, uh, no great word from me. Uh, all I have is to desperately cling to these words. And I want you to be able to look down and say, yeah, he's not making this up. This is God's word. Um, if you walk out from here, having heard a word from John, then, then you can just drop it in the round file on the way out. It means nothing. Um, but if you walk out from here with a word of God, um, then we have to deal with that. Then we, need, then we have something to, to found our lives on. So that's our goal this morning, is just to expound God's word together. And this morning, as we come through Exodus, we, we come to a massive turning point. Uh, the travel is done. We've landed at Mount Sinai. And here come the Ten Commandments. All of the other 603 laws of the Old Testament rest on and flow out from these Ten Commandments when, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. He's pointing back to the Ten Commandments. I'll show you that in a minute. Uh, the first four commandments are about loving God. The remaining six are about loving others. But it's important as we come through this context to realize the purpose of these commandments. Why are they coming? Why are they here? What's he trying to accomplish? Um, The purpose of the Canadian Constitution was to set up a a just and and fair government and to establish a country that would respect and guard basic human rights and freedoms. That's important. It's valid. That's That's a good goal for a constitution. But the purpose of these laws is very different. It does produce a distinct national identity for them as a people, but that's not the point. It does protect weak and helpless and guard justice and fairness, but that's not the point. It does create a society based on personal responsibility and and basic human rights and freedoms, and it produces an atmosphere that that promotes peace and, and human flourishing in the midst of a broken world, but even that's not the point. We take these laws in the the context of the book of Exodus and all that the Lord has done from the beginning up to here. 
we look even just as far back as Exodus chapter 19, it becomes inescapably clear. All of this is to display God's glory through a relationship with his people. It's about building this relationship with his people. Uh, Exodus 19 verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God's treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. That's what this is driving toward. By giving them this law, he's, he's revealing himself. He's, he's still answering that great overarching question, who is the Lord? And we see his, his goodness and his character coming through. But he's also telling his people, this is how you draw near to me. This is how you approach the unapproachable God. Last week in chapter 19, we saw some great kind of general principles as they come to Mount Sinai. And the Lord first says, you only approach me by grace. Remember, I brought you out of Egypt. I, I scooped you up on eagles' wings. It's by my grace. It wasn't by anything that you did. I have brought you to this place. I've already made you mine. And then he shows we approach through obedience. And we approach with this holy fear and trembling to the God of, of lightning and thunder who shakes the mountain. And we approach only through the mediator as, as Moses pits this, this amazing picture of, of Jesus standing between God and man. As we come into chapter 20, we get a little more specific. What does that obedience look like? How exactly do we obey? And we have a bit of a hurdle to overcome here as we approach this text um, because this is an old covenant law. This is part of the law of Moses. It's not given to us. So technically, we're not under the Ten Commandments because we're not part of the Old Covenant. We're part of the New Covenant in Christ. So as we read this, how do we approach this? Jesus said that he's come and he has made the Old Covenant obsolete. It's no longer in effect. So people would say, I'm sure you've heard this. If you've spent any time interacting with people and sharing the gospel with unbelievers, you'll hear this. You say that you follow the Bible, but you don't stone adulterers, right? You're wearing that cotton polyester shirt. I thought you believed the Bible. What do you do? Well, they just show that they absolutely misunderstand the entire internal logic of the Bible. Those laws aren't in play anymore. We're not under that old covenant, that old contract that God had with Israel. We are in the new covenant. So, what are we doing here? Why waste our time then in, in the Old Covenant? Well, I think there's good, good reason for it. Um, in the Old Covenant, even in these laws, uh, we learn about who God is. We see his character behind these things, and his character does not change. And there's a unique relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant builds on and fulfills the Old Covenant. And so you can't really understand the fullness and the glory of the New Covenant if you don't understand the Old Covenant that lays the foundation for it and points toward it. But when it comes to application, we need to just be 
precise as how, how do we move forward? How do we take these verses and, and apply them into our own lives? See them from a, a new covenant perspective. And I'm going to try and model that for you as we walk through these verses and it'll become increasingly significant as we go deeper into the law over the next couple of months. Um, but we're going to take Jesus' lead as we enter into uh, the Ten Commandments. Jesus breaks it down into basically two. Love God, love others. I would love to have spent 10, 15 weeks here. Um, today's sermon was at one point maybe four sermons and then squished back down into one. So we got some ground to cover. Um, but the first commandment is, is love God. And the second is love others. And the first six commandments that we're going to, or the, sorry, the first four we're going to look at today uh, all have to do with, with right worship. How do you approach God? You approach God through right worship. And then next week we'll see uh, through right relationships. So here is one of these great principles that we understand about God's character behind the law. We approach God, we, we draw near to God through right worship. And that's described beginning uh, in the first commandment. Let me read uh, verses one to three. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's just stop right there. It's actually hard to tell, and I was kind of surprised by this going through this, um, where these words are spoken. Where is this happening? How is this happening? Um, and it seems to me the clearest uh, route to take is to see that, that Moses came down the mountain at the end of chapter 19, and he's with the people again, from where he was kind of up and down the mountain about three different times in chapter 19. But now he's back down with the people, and the Lord speaks all these words, I think, to the whole congregation of Israel um, because then down in chapter 20, verse 19, we have the people saying to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. If you remember the thunder and the lightning, that makes a little more sense. Um, but I think they've heard the Ten Commandments and they've said, okay, that's enough. That's all we can handle from God. Um, Moses, you take notes and give us kind of the Coles notes afterward. Um, so I think Israel is gathered around Mount Sinai and the Lord speaks this to, to all of them. Uh, later on, he's going to go up the mountain for 40 days and he'll come down with the Ten Commandments written on the tablets of stone, but that's not what's happening here. The Lord speaks. And notice yet again, he starts with grace. This astounds me. Every time as we're coming through Exodus, we're reminded again and again to the point of just unavoidable redundancy. This is about grace. Remember, I'm the Lord, your God. Notice that relationship language. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've already saved you. I've already freed you from your oppressors and brought you to this place. Now, how do you enjoy that relationship? How do you live as my people? First and foremost, you shall have no other gods before me. See why this is the first commandment. It starts here. Everything else flows out from this. The Lord is God. Now the wording in the English has made some people speculate. Maybe the first command doesn't actually establish monotheism, that there is only one God. Um, maybe it's just about only worshiping one God. Right? There's no other gods before me, so as long as you worship Yahweh as the top, you can have whatever else underneath, right? Well, I think the Hebrew clears that up. Literally, it could be read, you shall have no other gods before my face. 
before me doesn't mean ahead of me and priority to me. It means in my presence. And actually that, that phrase, before my face, um, as it could in English, um, could have some um, opposition language to it. These other gods would be in opposition to me. So no other gods in my presence. No other gods, period. But here's the cool thing. The, the wording here, the, the word have is, is awkward. Uh, to be to is, is maybe the kind of harsh translation of it. And, and, and where it shows up elsewhere is marriage covenants. That's what God is looking for. You're to have this closeness, this covenant relationship with God. I'm to be your God with none else beside, like like a wife dedicated to a husband. That's a beautiful picture. It's this relationship that he's looking for. And remember, this is a weird thing for Israel. They had just come out of 400 years in Egypt. Scholars estimate Egyptians had about 2,000 gods through their time. Um, Every nation around them had just gods on top of gods on top of gods. And Israel was to have one. One God. They were unique. They were different. Now, you might be tempted to think, okay, I see this command. Um, This is pretty simple in our day and age. I don't have a problem with this. I'm not... I don't, I don't believe in any other gods. I'm not tempted to worship Zeus. I'm not tempted to bring an offering to Shiva. Um, we're good. Move on. But I think as we, as we look at how Jesus handles the Ten Commandments in Matthew 5, I think it kind of explodes this a little bit. You're familiar with this passage. He takes the command, you shall not murder. And he says, well, if anyone is angry with his brother in his heart, he's already committed murder. He takes the commandment, do not commit adultery. And he says, but if you even lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. He's saying these commands are not, it's not a a strict command in the cold, hard, judicial sense as we would see it. It's not about just murder or just adultery in kind of a hard technical sense, but it's everything moving in that direction. It's the inclinations of the heart. That's how these commands would be understood. It's it's pointing the way toward what is good and right and true and everything else that is at all contrary to that is off the table. So Jesus reiterates this command saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. There's the the new new covenant first commandment. So you haven't, killed a goat to worship Allah lately. But are there other things that that compete with your ultimate love for God? Other things that would kind of shoehorn their way in? Are there other things that you look to for joy and and satisfaction over and above God, in in competition with God? Are there other things that you're tempted to to put your ultimate hope and, and trust in? you're feeling overwhelmed and fearful, where do you turn? TV to distract you, alcohol or drugs to numb you, maybe hard work and self-will to validate you. Uh, I got to confess, God was dealing with me as I'm going through this. That's where I flip back and forth. I'm getting busy and stressed out. I just, I just got to Netflix for a little bit. I, you know what? I just got to get something accomplished. I got to work with my hands and, and do something and, and validate myself. No, I need to go to the Lord in prayer. I need to trust him. He is my God. 
He is my satisfaction, my, my joy, my comfort, my identity. That's first commandment stuff. Uh, Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. I feel that. We're just constantly coming up with other things to try to fill the void in our soul. And sometimes that's hoping and trusting in other things above him. Um, but another way I think we do this um, that is so insidious, we don't even often recognize it when we do it. Rather than worshiping the one true God as he is, um, we don't outright replace him, but we just kind of subtly change the God of the Bible to a God that's kind of more to our liking. A God of our own definition, a God of our own making. Calvin wasn't quite so gentle. Um, he wrote a lot about this idea of idolatry. Uh, and here's what he has to say about this particular tendency. He says, The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, desires to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance, it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. That ought to terrify us. We don't like the God who doesn't agree with us. We read the Bible and we come across something we say, I, I wish that wasn't there. And so in our minds, we just kind of snip it out. The God that I worship would never, well, that's a dangerous statement, is the God that you worship the God of the Bible. We begin to form a God who agrees with our moral judgments, with our sensibilities, rather than worshiping him and submitting to him as God as he is. And, and little by little in our own minds, what we've done is created our own false God. A God to our own liking. We approach God, we, we rightly draw near to God only as we let God define himself in his word and worship him, loving him, trusting him as supreme, as he is. You shall have no other gods before me. And secondly, you shall not make for yourselves any carved image or likeness. Let me read verses four to six for us. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. So the first command is about who we worship. The second commandment is about how we worship. And you do not worship God by making idols, by making carved images. The Bible has a lot of metaphors about God. He's, he's our rock. He is a warrior. He is a king. Um, we read about the hand of the Lord and the eyes of the Lord, but all in a metaphorical sense. The Bible never actually tells us what God looks like. It's not there. Yeah, humanity, we're, we're made in some sense in the image of God, but that doesn't mean that God has toes. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like ours. But more than that, God is transcendent. He is over and above and, and outside of all of creation. 
Think about the gods of Egypt that we saw through the, the plagues pouring out. Most of them had, had human bodies with a, you know, maybe the, the head of a dog or a frog or the horns of a cow or the wings of an eagle. They're all this hodgepodge of created things pushed together. And they all had physical needs. And so their sacrifices to their gods were, were seen as feeding their gods and providing for their gods something that their god needed. Not this god. This god is different. He's not like those other gods. Those gods are false. This God is the creator of everything, and he's independent of this world. He exists outside of and above everything. He has no need of anything. Just stop and wrap your mind around that. Let that sink into your heart. God doesn't need you. There's nothing you can offer God and say, here, God, you'll be better now if you take this from me. He doesn't need you. To make an image of God, no matter how grand, how majestic, is necessarily to cut him down. It's to confine him, to make him seem as if he's dependent on creation, to bring him down. When he's truly transcendent, he's over, outside of, above this physical world. But there's more to the idea of idolatry in the ancient world than, than just the, the representation. It's a whole system of thought. It's a whole way of approaching and dealing with your God. To make an idol was, was how you controlled your God, manipulated your God. And so idolatry was a means of, of guaranteeing the presence of your God. How do you know God is with you? Well, I have him right here. God is going into battle with us. Isn't that handy? You can take him with you. It's also an easy way, a convenient way. You just make the right sacrifices to your idol. You, you, you keep a little bit of food and a little bit of wine in, in front of your idol and you're done. An idol doesn't make big demands. It just makes little demands. It just wants a little bit of attention every now and then, and then you can walk away. So it's this guarantee of presence. It's easy and convenient, um, but it's also just physical, and we like that as humans, don't we? How many times have you heard, oh, I can't see God? Boy, it'd be nice if we could see him. Here's my God. Look at him. Of course he's real. It makes sense to them to have this physical interaction with God. And it was also very self-focused. You, you feed your idol, you, you do your service, and God gives you what you want. You, you put in your time and then you make your withdrawal. It was a vending machine approach to God. I can get what I need from this God. I have an idol of the God of fertility. We want more children, so we'll make our sacrifice and then we'll get what we asked for. And it was just normal. This is the way Israel knew it. This is what happened all around them in the, the countries that surrounded them. This was the regular worldly practice of worship. And the Lord says, no. I will not be represented by anything physical. You're not going to bring me down and make me part of creation. I'm transcendent over it. I'm outside of it. I have no need of anything. And then notice this warning, verse 5. For the Lord your God, I the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What is that about? Why is that here? Um, we're not going to unpack that as fully as, as I might like to. Um, but I think it helps if we understand that it's, it's 
directly responding to the idea of idolatry. It's correcting what idolatry distorts. God is a jealous God, jealous in a good way. Jealous like a loving husband is, is passionate to be the, the, the recipient of the affection of his wife. And God is saying, token worship doesn't do it for me. You're not going to just bring me a little sacrifice and then go do your own thing. I'm a jealous God. I want all of you. I don't want some piddly little sacrifice. I want you. It's like a husband saying, I'm not okay with you just coming and saying, I love you, but I'm, I'm going on a weekend trip with Roger from work. No, that's not how this relationship works. I want all of you. I'm a jealous God. And a lot of ink has been spilled arguing over what it means that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Does that mean that God punishes children for the sins of their fathers? Does that mean that maybe you have some generational sin in your life, some kind of mystical foothold um, that, that brings pain and suffering into your life because of the sin of your father or your grandfather? Um, I don't think either of those are consistent with what we see in Scripture. But I think even right here we see there's, there, there's, that's not what this is about. It's about personal responsibility still. It says to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Here's what he's saying. I will be consistent for generations to come. I don't change. And I will punish iniquity for three and four generations. That was their kind of typical for a long time. I'm going to make this pact with you for three and four generations. It's not changing. But then, notice the contrast for a thousand generations of those who love me and obey my commands. That's the point. You want assurance of my presence with you? You want to know that I'm with you? Don't, don't do it by bringing a, a carved chunk of wood. Do it through love and obedience. And if you love me and obey me, I will be with you faithfully for a thousand generations. It's never changing. That's not ending. My presence will be with those who love me and who out of that love obey my commands. You don't need an idol. That's a crotch. It's useless. Trust in my promises. So what does this look like today? John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is spirit. And so we worship him in spirit. Idolatry is condemned numerous times throughout the New Testament. To be frank, I think we could talk about the Catholic Church here. Venerating saints and Mary. The, the practice of, of say this prayer 50 times and you'll be forgiven. The idea of relics, these holy items of the past, a piece of the cross or the, the thigh bone of John the Baptist. If you, if you go and, and look on it, you'll, you'll receive some level of forgiveness. It, it, it's idolatry. But it happens for us as well. Sunday morning offering. It's a good, wonderful practice commanded in Scripture. We ought to do it. But here again, Acts 17.25, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. You gave this morning. You say, you're welcome, God. I got your back, God. We have this idea that our offering turns God into our vending machine. It puts God in our debt that somehow he needs to now scratch my back. It's idolatry. 
even going to church at all. It's this physical sacrifice. I go to church, God, you owe me. Now my life ought to go well. Now you ought to bring the things that I've been asking for because look at what I've done for you. I put my money in, God. I put my time in, God. Or the way we pray. It's easy to think of prayer almost like a magical incantation. If I say these right words, God will have to respond. It's not the way this works. God says, if you want to approach me, if you want to have assurance of my favor, if you want to know my blessing, and he promises that blessing immovable and unshakable abundantly to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commandments, trust him, starting with he is God over all, love him, obey him. So we approach God through, through right worship, having no other gods before him, and then not engaging with him as we would an idol, but engaging with him out of true love and, and sacrificial obedience. And then thirdly, not taking his name in vain. Look at verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The literal understanding here has to do with oaths. The practice of swearing by something. You would, you would swear by your God, maybe in a courtroom setting. And, and, and to do that was to say that, that your God would be the witness against you. That, that my God will hold me accountable if I'm lying or if I don't fulfill the oath that I'm making right now. And the warning here is, is not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Don't, don't use it in a worthless way. Futile or empty. Don't, don't swear by the Lord and then not fulfill it. And so you could still conceivably swear by the name of the Lord as long as you were telling the truth, as long as you upheld your end of the bargain. But again, let's get to the heart of this command. What is this, what is this really about? If hatred of another person breaks the command of murder... What are the ways that this command can be broken in a more subtle way? What are the things that, that move in the direction of this command? Jesus took this command and in fear and reverence, not, or sorry, the Jews, um, not wanting to, to use the Lord's name in vain, they said, we're just not going to use the name at all. We're just going to cut it out of our vocabulary. We will not speak the name of the Lord. I, I have a friend to this day when he writes, God, it's G-D. I don't want to use the Lord's name in vain. When they would read their Old Testament scriptures, if they were reading through Exodus, they would see the, the tetragrammaton, the four letters that make up the name Yahweh on the page, and they would read out loud Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for master or Lord. And, and actually, that's where the practice comes from today. As you're reading along and you see Lord in all caps, um, behind that is Yahweh, the name of God. But that's kind of a pragmatic, narrow, kind of cold, literal approach, I don't think it's the heart of this. One obvious implication is the name of the Lord is to be honored. It's to be respected, revered. We ought to think carefully about how we speak God's name. Phrases like, oh my God, I swear to God. Flippant ways that we talk about God or use the name of Jesus as a curse word. It's hard because culturally that's just not a big deal. 
Right? Nobody would bat an eye to hear a 10-year-old say, oh my God, look at that. It's heard even in Christian circles. But, but I think if we understand God's character behind this, we begin to see we ought to revere God's name. We hold other things more offensive, right? The F word is way more offensive, isn't it? Because it takes sex and it cheapens it. It makes it something crass and, and crude. And so we say that's, that's offensive. But how much more the phrases that degrade and make crass and crude our God, make him flippant. That ought to terrify us. That ought to be far more offensive than any other English language usage. But I think we can push it further yet. Taking the name of the Lord, swearing by the name of the Lord in the courtroom was to identify yourself with him. To say, this is my God. This is the one who will hold me accountable. This is the God that I will answer to. So in a broader sense, I think we do that with our whole lives, don't we? When we call ourselves Christians. When we say we're followers of God. The title Christian literally means little Christs. We take the Lord's name on us. And so then, don't our whole lives show if we've taken that in vain? Jesus challenges this. Luke 6, 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I mean, it's a pretty straightforward question. This just doesn't make any sense. Don't, don't claim me as Lord and Master, saying, He's the one I follow. He's the one that will judge me. And, and then live as if it's not true. Like, you say to your boss, okay, boss, and then you don't do it. It doesn't make sense. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. If we call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves followers of Christ, then, then our lives ought to reflect that. If you're going to live, we, we ought to live in a way that, that honors him and upholds that and brings glory to his name. Sort of have no other gods before him. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't take his name in vain. And then finally, the last of these commands on right worship. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Let me read, um, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Just remember the Sabbath. Six days you work, seventh day you rest. The, the root of that word Sabbath simply means stop. Rest, cease. Um, it's interesting, almost all of the ancient religions had their annual feasts and their monthly feasts. They were, they were built around the rotation of the solar system, right? The, the moon around the earth or the earth around the sun. And, and so did Israel, but this one's different. There's, there's, no, um, there's no connection to astronomy with a weekly Sabbath. It's rooted in creation. It's rooted in God resting on the seventh day 
And so again, this was something that just made them weird. It set them apart. It made them different as God's people. Why do you do that? That's strange to us. And it was also an amazing expression of trust. Think about it. Every other nation is productive seven days a week. Your entire nation shuts down for one out of seven. That's, that's like more than a 10% loss all of a sudden on your productivity. That hurts. So when we say, oh, I'm too busy to take a day off, what are we really saying? God, I don't trust you to provide. I have to do it. I have to take care of it. I have to get down to business because I don't know if you will. We take a day to rest from our work. It's a statement that I'm not ultimate. I am not God. God himself even rested on the seventh day. And I'm going to do likewise because the Lord is sovereign. He provides. I trust him. Now, the Jews had endless debates. And even Christians today will differ on what's appropriate on the Sabbath. The Jews defined every little detail as they were prone to do, right down to how far you could walk and how heavy a weight you could lift. And, and the idea of Sabbath became drudgery. It was work again. I don't know if you've ever read the Little House in the Prairie series, we're going through that with our kids. Um, or, or maybe your grandparents have told you stories of, of Sabbath back in the day. They missed it. They missed it. On the Sabbath, you are not to have fun. Sit down, be quiet. It's a holy day. Holy must mean somber or boring or terrible. I don't know what the definition of holy is. It's a burdensome day. Think about what God did on his Sabbath. He's created this beautiful world and the Garden of Eden. He's put the man and the woman in it on the seventh day. What does he do? He says, oh, this is good. I just see God sitting on his porch overlooking the garden with cold iced tea in his hand. This is good. That's the Sabbath. He's enjoying the fruit of his labor. It's a, it's a celebration. It should be a joyful time. Holy means set apart. Set apart for something good. It's about enjoying the fruit of your labor. It's about enjoying the goodness of God. Isaiah 58, um, Isaiah calling the people back to obedience. Um, he says this, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, and, and that word maybe would be better translated business, from doing your business on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure, business, or talking idly, then you will delight in the Lord. Sabbath is meant to be delighting in God, enjoying Him, celebrating Him, enjoying His, His good gifts. Now, the Sabbath, probably more than other uh, of the Ten Commandments, begs this question, do we do this? How do we do this? What does this look like? And there are people uh, who, who have said, no, we, we, can't, we can't come to redemption because we need to meet on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, because that's the seventh day. I remember as a teenager spending the weekend uh, helping my uncle shingle his roof. And, and my brother, um, let's just say he didn't love hard work and he was very clever. Um, Sunday morning came and we took a break. We went to church. We had a big family dinner, but we were there for a reason to help out my uncle. And so 
was back to work. And, and wouldn't you know it, over the course of that night, my brother had become a strict Sabbatarian. Dad, we cannot work on the Sabbath. Not going to happen. I'm not going up on that roof and I'm justified in it. Is, is he right? But we're not under the old covenant. So the short answer is no. We're not bound to a day. We're not bound to a strict set of rules to rest. Now, should we take a day off a week? Yeah. And actually, if you're looking at the, the progression of covenants, the Sabbath command comes in this Mosaic covenant, but it's, but it's rooted in creation, right? We're, we're still part of creation as far as I know. Um, God rested, and there's a principle in that. Should we still take a day for worship? Should we go to church on Sunday? Yeah. Yeah, the New Testament does command us to gather together with other believers for worship, for preaching, for fellowship. The early church understood right away that the old covenant has, has passed. And so to distinguish themselves from the old covenant, they, be, they began to meet on Sundays, the day that Jesus rose from the grave. We see that even in Acts. They continued to meet. They continued to worship together, even though that wouldn't have been a day off for them. They would have most likely had to work on the Sunday. But here's where the old covenant pointing to the new covenant really begun, be, begins to come alive. What's the purpose of the old covenant? This whole thing with Moses, what's it doing? What's the overarching theme of all of it? It's pointing to Jesus. It's to show us our great need and God's great provision of the rescuer. What he, what he promised as far back as Genesis 3.15, saying someone is going to come who will set you free from the curse of sin and death. He's coming. Watch for him. So if we don't see that in the Ten Commandments, we're missing it. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus comes along in John 10, 30. He says, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How do you worship God? We've seen God in Jesus. He himself is God to be worshiped above all else. The second commandment, you shall make, not make any idols, any image or likeness saying that that's not how you will know me. That's not how you will guarantee my presence with you. Colossians 1.15 shockingly says, Jesus is the image, the idol of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The transcendent became imminent. He came down, he subjected himself to human flesh, to this creation. And we don't come to God through an idol that we make with our hands. We come to him through Jesus. And we have his presence guaranteed with us in Jesus. The third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Call him Lord and not back that up by your actions, not let that bear fruit in your life. And Jesus fulfilled this command perfectly. John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Not only that, Philippians 2, 8, being found in human form, it's Jesus, 
humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then look at this, because of that obedience, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So we have to be careful not to take the name of the Lord in vain, but God bestowed on Jesus the name above all names. Jesus is this fulfillment of these commands. But there's something else that happens or should happen as we look at these commands. We approach God through right worship. That's how we come to him. And God defines right worship in these four commands. And we don't match up. We don't make it. It's not there. I don't live up to this standard. I am unable to approach God. I'm on the outside. If this is how you do it, we've failed. And we have no hope of coming into the presence of this God. Who among us hasn't run after something else for joy, for satisfaction? Trusted in some earthly thing over and above God? Who among us hasn't at one time or another treated God like a vending machine to be manipulated? Failed to live up to the name of Christ? The Ten Commandments are this crushing condemnation. We have no hope of approaching God. A confirmation that we are not good enough. That's where the fourth commandment lands. It's called a rest. Reminder of where we started. Grace. Grace. The command to cease from our labor and rejoice in what God has Pointing forward to Jesus and its hope, unimaginable. Hope of being given what we could never have earned. Part of the law of Moses were these ongoing sacrifices, right? Bulls, goats, birds being killed to show that our sin, our deviation from the law requires death. And it was done repeatedly over and over and over again, year after year after year. And then Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. He ceased. He rested. Because it's done. It's complete. The law had been fulfilled by the life and sacrifice of Jesus. So Hebrews 4 verse 8 says, For if if Joshua had given them rest, now what's he talking about? What did Joshua give them? It was Joshua that led them into the promised land, the the fulfillment of of this covenant promise, the land. But if Joshua had really given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, something bigger, something other than a physical land for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. It's Jesus. 
He is our Sabbath. He is the ultimate rest for our souls that we need. Have you entered that rest? That ceasing from your frenetic labor, trying to please God, trying to earn some favor in his eyes. Rested in the work of Jesus. He did it. His perfect life of obedience lived on my behalf. His death on the cross, paying the penalty for where I fall short. That's the true Sabbath. Yes, we draw near to God in an ongoing way through right worship. We ought to continue to strive for that, to grow in that out of love for God as we, as we live as his people. That's how we deepen and enjoy our relationship with him. But part of that is resting in the fact that Christ has already fulfilled the law. Its condemnation has been taken away. He's already paid the price for our failure so that we can know him, so that we can enjoy his favor, so we can sit back and rejoice in what God has accomplished. So have no other gods before him. Don't don't treat him like an idol. Don't take his name in vain and remember, rest in, Sabbath in Christ. Let's pray.